Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower King, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll start our coverage of Christine, discussing the prologue and chapters 1 through 11. Let's start the show! Told from the perspective of Dennis Gilder about four years after the events of the novel, set in 1978, Christine begins with Dennis's best friend, Arnie Cunningham, noticing a dilapidated 1958 Plymouth Fury with a for-sale sign in the yard of an old man. Dennis tries to dissuade Arnie from buying the car, nicknamed Christine, but after putting down a deposit, Arnie buys it the next day over the objections of his parents. Dennis has a strange vision while sitting in the car and is afraid of it. Arnie takes Christine to Darnell's garage, where he plans on fixing it up. The original owner of the car, a Roland D. LeBay, dies shortly thereafter. At his funeral, Dennis meets LeBay's brother, George, who invites Dennis to his motel, where he plans on telling him the tale of Christine. Jay, you are super psyched to do Christine. So psyched. I love this book. I haven't read it for a while, and I got into it, and I am now super psyched to read this book as well. So it's probably the biggest stretch of a book we've done so far in trying to relate it to the Dark Tower, but we're going to have fun with it, I think. Oh, for sure. This is such a great book. One of my top King books for sure. I love the movie adaptation, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. I'm thrilled that you are enjoying it as much as you are so far. So, and we'll we'll find those perhaps very thin, but we'll find <laughs> we'll find some thinnies to connect it to the Dark Tower. I'm sure we will. All right, so this book was released in April of 1983, and I just want to point out this kick-ass cover by Craig DeCamps for this book, uh, the original cover of Christine. It's this like stylized chrome looking logo that just says Christine with a skull upon it, like a, like a hood ornament. I remember this cover because I think my father had the hardcover. This is one of the first King books I read and he had it and he, he had it and it was already old by the time I got it because it was torn and ripped in places. So it like even looked like, you know how Stranger Things posters all have like the fake wear and tear on it. Like that's mm-hmm. what my dad's copy of Christine looked like. And so when I picked this book up again and looked at the cover, I'm like, oh yeah, I- I'm down for this. The the cover is just fantastic. And I'm going to point to a blog post by Bryant Burnett. Bryant Burnett has a site called The Truth Inside the Lie, a blog about Stephen King. And he had an article in 2015 where he ranks the Stephen King first edition mass market cover art. And I don't think it's a spoiler to say that Christine is number two. That seems really, really right to me. Like, this is just an awesome cover. I agree. This is a really interesting cover. Some of the others that I've seen have been not nearly as interesting, I guess. Uh, I remember a paperback with just like tire treads. Mm. A lot with headlights, just like headlights. And that's all you see. Yeah. My Kindle edition has like the front of the car facing you, but you only see like the driver's side half mm. of the car yeah. and the car's on fire. 
that's kind of cool. Like, at least I, there's, I can see the Plymouth Fury and it's apparently sitting in hell or something like that. <laughs> I, I don't know, but I think that's a pretty great cover. Anyhow, great cover. Right around this time, so the previous King novel that came out was Cujo in 1981. So, wow. Two years between books for King, like that's a rarity. But in 1982, The Running Man by Bachman came out. And that was also the year the Gunslinger Special Edition came out. So a lot of people didn't know that there was a King book that came out in 1982, but that was The Gunslinger that was that special edition by Grant that was then advertised in Pet Cemetery as pre- other books by King. And people were like, wait, what? I don't know this book, The Gunslinger. So that's sort of the time frame we're in. Later in 1983, so he makes up for not having really one in 1982 by having three in 1983, Pet Cemetery comes out and then Cycle of the Werewolf. So he was keeping busy. I mean, who knows how much extra work he had to go back and do for the Dark Tower Gunslinger special edition. Yeah. He just didn't publish these other books. He was writing them. Oh, I'm sure he was. Yes, obviously. Uh, so what's interesting is because there was three books that came out in 1983, Christine got nominated for a best fantasy novel and it took sixth place. And Pet Cemetery was seventh place. So he had two in the top seven. So good, good for you, King. Wow. Would you consider this a fantasy novel? I wondered like how Locus categorizes things, like if they didn't have a horror category back then. And so there was either hard sci-fi and then everything else was fantasy or how they did genre works. I'm not sure. I'm not even sure if you really classify this as squarely in horror either. So I guess there are some elements of magic, and since it's not really science fiction, right? I could see you get into fantasy after you think about it enough. Yeah, I'm not sure if Pet Cemetery is fantasy either, though, unless you count the ground being Sawa as some sort of magic. <laughs> yes, that is a famous elven incantation. The ground is Sawa. Sometimes that is better. Oh, yeah. The American Library Association, of which my wife is a member, named Christine the 95th most banned and challenged book in the United States between 1990 and 1999. I am going to be interested to see why. So far, I've not seen anything that would want me to ban this book. Hmm. I figured you were going to follow that statement up with the reason why it keeps getting banned. I'm guessing there's sex coming up. That's generally why books are banned in America. Yeah, it's definitely not for violence or war, or anything like that. So you had mentioned how much you loved the film, Jay, and I'm sure we'll be talking about it. It came out in December of 1983. So what is that? Eight months after the book was published? So it was obviously optioned and put into production right away, if not ahead of time, before it came out. And we'll talk about that John Carpenter film, I am sure. In June of 2021, there was an announcement that Brian Fuller would be rebooting Christine for Bloomhouse, who makes a lot of horror movies. I have not seen any more information other than like a huge amount of articles in June saying, hey, Brian Fuller's doing Christine, but um, I haven't heard anything more about that. So more to come on that. Hmm. But as I've heard people say, people shouldn't be remaking good movies. You should be remaking bad movies. And I don't think Christine needs to be remade. I agree. Whenever you take a horror concept and put it in John Carpenter's hands, the result is gold. Yeah. You don't need to make it again. Take bad movies and remake those. Bad movies with good ideas. Remake those. Don't make remake good movies. So. Yeah, not like RoboCop. Yeah. Don't, don't get me started. So you and I also noticed something else, Jay, and that is that the Kindle editions that 
we're both reading don't have all of the same information that some of the original books have. Yeah. Uh, we'll get into some of the specifics a little later, but I still have the, I think, 1985 or 88 edition mass market paperback that I first read. Luckily, I still have that as a reference. And um, this is one of the few paperbacks that I've held on to over the years because I love this book so much. Comparing it to the Kindle edition, there's a, a big difference in the epigraph. There are differences in song references and things like that. I think there's a whole element of this book that is missing in the later editions, mm -hmm. including the, the Kindle. And I'm not sure how much that might degrade the reader's experience, but we'll expand on that a little bit more later. All right. Well, let's get into it. There's a lot happening, as you could tell by my introductory paragraph on on what happens in this section. Th these, these first 120 pages do a lot of setting up and a lot of, of action. But let's get into the themes. I think everyone can understand the plot. It's pretty straightforward. Guy falls in love with the car. Car's sort of creepy. His best friend wants to figure out what's going on because his friend's changing in, in odd ways. But the one thing that I didn't remember about this book is sort of this creeping knowledge of death that keeps existing throughout. Mm. Our narrator is 22 when he's narrating it, but he's telling of a time when he was a senior in high school, so 17, 18 years old. And he talks in a way about death that you wouldn't expect someone that young to talk about in a way that really permeates this book. Dennis is remarkably introspective and thoughtful, and he is constantly reaching both backwards to childhood and forwards into adulthood. and keenly aware of the fact that he is at that age on the like the balancing point between those two states mm -hmm. he's still a kid in a lot of ways who's about to become an adult but he's also discovering a lot of the truths of what being an adult is even though he hasn't yet fully embarked upon that part of his journey in life it's something that we came up with when we were talking about it. Like He seems to be so aware of the finitude of life. <laughs> yes. He's looking back at his own childhood. He compares that to Arnie's. He compares that to some of the other people that he just knows in more broad strokes and how being a kid is a certain way and how being an adult is another way. And it took him until this point in his childhood to start to really catch on to the imperfections of adulthood, the challenges of adulthood, and that becoming an adult is sort of embarking on the end of your life. It might not be immediate, but you start as a kid and you grow up into an adult. And then once you're an adult, you kind of grow towards the grave. Yeah, this is a fulcrum. And I'm about to step onto the downhill slope. Uh -huh. And I'm only 18 or 22 as he's writing these, these thoughts. The, the prologue talks about how this story is a tragedy. And the one thing I learned about Shakespeare is he wrote two types of plays, or three types, but there was the histories. But then there was the the comedies and the tragedies. And the comedies generally ended with a wedding. And the tragedies generally ended with the main character dying. Obviously, Dennis is not going to die. He's narrating the book. Mm -hmm. But it's pretty clear what's going to happen if we have a if if we have a a Almost star-crossed lovers here, right? This is going to start off like Romeo and Juliet, but end in tragedy. Exactly. Things aren't looking well for Arnie. And so that knowing 
knowing what the end is, it's easy to have him writing this and thinking about death. But it's more than just my best friend is going to die. There's something about my whole life that is being changed by my best friend dying and how much I realize, like you said, the finitude of death or finitude of life. Yes, the finitude of life. Yeah, there's a big part of this where Dennis is thinking about how kids are disappointed by adults and that part of growing up is the realization of the imperfection of the adults around the kids or in those those kids' lives. Yep. One line is, you know, with a strong and unnerving instinct that if you don't bulldoze down a few fences and knock down some gates, your folks, out of the best of intentions, would be happy to keep you in the kid corral forever. So basically, like, as every kid needs to go through this period of, of rebellion and, and almost actively destroying parts of their childhood to break down these barriers so that they can become adults. Mm-hmm. And that's a destructive act. It's a painful act. And it hurts not just the kid, but the parent. And it's necessary, though. So it's like you, you can't grow up without experiencing some trauma. And he's reflecting on that trauma here. Yep. And it's not just your own parents, but it's all the adults around you, right? So later on, he says, there are moments when adults disgust you in ways you would never understand. I believe that, you know, I had one of those moments then, and it only made me feel worse. When Regina, who is Arnie's mother, shouted at her husband, I saw her as both vulgar and scared. And because I loved her, I had never wanted to see her either way. And so it's this disappointment where you realize, oh, adults are humans mm-hmm. and have faults and foibles, and I, I don't like I don't like learning that because that changes my impression of them. Yeah, and for Dennis, Arnie was like uh, an adopted brother, and and Arnie's parents were like a second set of parents for him, and vice versa for Arnie and Dennis's family. So that's why Dennis is saying that he loved Regina, he loved her like another mom, and. When he saw her as an imperfect human being, he realized, oh, she has flaws. And I didn't think that this pseudo mom was anything but this perfect thing who I loved. And I, I wish I'd, I'd never experienced that. Yep. But because it's not his actual mom, it's sort of like maybe easier for him to observe this or be, be aware of it. And he's one layer removed from her as a as a relation, whereas if it had been maybe his own mom, he might not have been so keenly aware of it. Right. I hinted at this a moment ago, but Dennis is also kind of really focused on adults facing their own death. The line that stood out for me around this was, what really scares people about growing up is that you stop trying on the life mask and start trying on another one. If being a kid is about learning how to live, then being a grown-up is about learning how to die. <laughs> that's that's where I was saying like he's at this fulcrum. Like he's been going uphill, 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 and that as a kid, and now he's going downhill as an adult. He's going down to his death, just like every other adult. I dog-eared a lot of pages in this book when I read it all those years ago. And this was one of those quotes that I, I set aside for myself because it really stood out. And this is one of the reasons why I, I love this book so much. It is on the surface, a story about a demon car, but it's so much more than that. This is, a, this is a book about how much it sucks to be a kid, which King explores in a lot of his books, but also how much it sucks to be a kid who's about to be an adult. 
and how much it sucks to be an adult too. It's not <laughs> like it, it gets any easier. It just gets more complicated. It turns out that basically King is saying all stages of life suck in some matter. Yeah. Life sucks and then you die. So we're going to talk a little bit more about the generational aspects of this book, but there's one that fits in here nicely. It's when Arnie's trying to get Christine to start and he uh, he swears at it and or or at least tries to coax her into starting for him. Mm-hmm. And Dennis says, what your mother leaves you is mostly good, hard-headed, practical advice. If you cut your toenails twice a month, you won't get so many holes in your socks. Put that down. You don't know where it's been. Eat your carrots. They're good for you. But it's from your father that you get the magic, the talismans, the words of power. If the car won't start, curse it. And be sure you curse it female. Mm-hmm. And I, I just like this. Here's this other role that adults play with their kids. Yeah. There's two parts to it. There's the straightforward part of raising a kid. And then there's this magical part that adults seem to know and gets passed down. And I think we can all probably think of examples from our parents or the adults in our lives where we get this thing that's not just your straightforward, like be good to other people and be sure to not drink spoiled milk and and this other sort of talismanic stuff, which King just is great about. That's really good. And, and I like how he's also both King and Dennis here are drawing a distinction between the roles of not just parents in general, but moms and dads. Yeah. And how, at least from Dennis's perspective, the moms are the practical ones. They're the realistic ones. They, they exist in the real world at all times. And that's what they're worried about. That's what their focus is. Whereas the dads, they have, for some reason, this ability to go beyond that or outside of that. That's where they get into like the, as you put it, the the talismanic stuff, the, yeah. these words of power. I don't know that dads are any wiser or more, more uh, you know, able to connect with things beyond the practical than, than moms, but there does seem to be a more general trend towards, especially for things like cars or sports, like that, those, those are things that men are more, more drawn to or more often drawn to than women. And therefore, if you're going to pick one of your two parents who's going to tell you how, uh, you know, tell you the rules to football or show you how to play catch or whatever. It's probably your dad. And if someone's going to help you work on a car or teach you how to change the oil, it's probably going to be your dad. So there's that connection. And, and the weird stuff too, like I could think of not my dad, but other dads who, when they're watching sports, they'll make sure like you've got to sit in that certain seat and you can't move and you have to wear these certain clothes. Because if you don't, the team who's playing a game 3000 miles away <laughs> are going to be influenced by the clothes you're wearing and where you're sitting. So, you know, it's very superstitious in that way. And that that that's why this sort of stuck out to me, because I'm not a car guy, but I'm a sports guy. And I can make that re- relation of like, oh, yeah, dads do that all the time. Let's talk a little bit about Christine and Arnie, because as we said in the prologue, as I said earlier, it's set up as a love story and a tragedy. It's immediate, right? Like we get this prologue and we know bad things are going to happen. And I think this is one of those books like everybody knows Christine, even if they haven't read it, right? Like, I bet we could, I bet we could find 10 people and like nine of them, if we said, Hey, what do you know about the book, Christine? And they would be able to tell us sort of pretty quickly what it is without even knowing it. It's one of those things that's permeated pop culture. For sure. And yet if you're coming to it, it's sort of like, okay, well, what is it about? What is this story? Cause there's more to it than that. And right after the prologue, like the first line is 
Arnie's saying to Dennis, like, stop, stop. We got to look at that. And what is it that catches his eye there? The line in the book is, Arnie had fallen in love with a 1958 Plymouth Fury, one of the long ones with big fins. I think that's really important. It's the fallen in love. Like, Arnie saw this car for a, a split second, and he was instantly connected to it. He was like a wild man in Dennis's car, insisting that he stop. Like, I, I had this this mental image of Arnie, like, ready to jump out of the moving car if Dennis didn't slow down or back up. He was going to make a beeline for that, for Christine, no matter what. I guess I could make lots of different guesses here, but a parallel that I saw was that maybe this is kind of like Tack. How in the regulators, Seth is in the car with his family, and they pass by the mine where Tack is trapped. And only Seth, because there's something about Seth and the way Seth and, and Tack can make a, a connection. He goes kind of bonkers in the car and says, take me back. I want to go see. I want to go see. Seth's behavior and insistence is very much like Arnie's. Mm. And they both have the people in the car with them who humor that character and take them back to very tragic results. So... I think that there's a parallel there. I, I don't know that there's any connection, but Arnie's behavior reminded me a lot of Seth's. Mm -hmm. Maybe because Christine seems to have this otherworldly nature that we don't really understand yet, but there's something to that, that she's sending out these like subliminal messages or radio waves or who knows, demonic, uh, magnetic, whatever. Like it's just something that Arnie responds to, but no one else or, or everyone can feel it. But for most people, it's repulsive. But for Arnie, for some reason, it's attractive. And he wants to be with the car. He wants to own the car. And, and Dennis even goes so far as to say that Arnie marries the car. Yeah. The completion of the sale and transfer of ownership and the beginning of the the repairs is like a courtship and a marriage and a, a relationship with a woman. Mm -hmm. And the obsession rivals that. It's deeply unhealthy. It maybe goes beyond love to something different. And it's George LeBay, the previous owner's brother, who talks to Dennis and tells him, who makes this comparison. Mm -hmm. We could argue about whether it's love or not. But then the way that George LeBay frames this, you're like, oh, it is love, but love is not what we're thinking. He says, the poets continually and sometimes willfully mistake love. Love is the old slaughterer. That's fantastic. Love is not blind. Love is a cannibal with extremely acute vision. Love is insectile. It is always hungry. What does it eat? Dennis asked, not aware he was going to ask anything at all. Every part of his mouth thought the entire conversation insane. Friendship. George LeBay said, it eats friendship, which has got to be haunting for, for Dennis at that point. George LeBay's not denying that Arnie could fall in love with a car, but it's not love like, hey, let's hold hands and run through the meadows in the spring type of love. Mm -hmm. love, is, love is something much darker than that. And just about every part of that quote you just said is just like pure gold. It's one of the other pages that I dog-eared in, in my copy of the book. Love is the old slaughterer is so great, but it's just one of these, like the old, the old in there. It's just like this 
ancient and constant thing. And its existence and its nature is, in the case of love, it's a slaughterer. Yeah. It kills and it consumes. And what it consumes is friendship. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it with friends. Things happen. They, they meet somebody and suddenly everything in their life is different. Mm-hmm. So the other thing about Arnie's attraction is that you often hear that like attracts like, or you know, birds of a feather flock together type of thing. And I wonder if some of this is Arnie sees himself in Christine. Mm. Christine is this dilapidated, ugly car that's rusting out and you want to look away when you see it. Dennis wants to look away. He, he can't believe what a wreck it is. And the way that King presents Arnie is that he is unattractive. He's covered with acne. He's not much to look at and you don't really, not very many people want to be, even be around him because they just aren't comfortable around him. And that's how Dennis feels about the car. And I wonder if potentially Arnie sees himself in Christine in some way. I can buy that. I like the implication. Somebody like Arnie has lived his whole life being that ugly duckling. And he probably feels correctly that he can't really do anything to change his appearance, but he can make Christine beautiful. So can't fix myself, but that's something that I can fix. And not only can I, I know how. Mm. I'm good at that stuff. That's a, a, a mercy that I can perform on this old car because I can't do it for myself and nobody else can do it for me, you know, or, or to me uh, on my behalf. So yeah, I like that. More to come on that, I'm sure. Sean, earlier when I talked about how the story is very simple on its face, that it's about a, a car possessed by a demon or something like that, it really ne- neglects a lot of the depth and detail of the story. But I think there's an element that is not obvious until you start reading it, that this isn't really just a story about a haunted car. This is a rock and roll story. Right on. This is a book with so much music in it. It sort of makes all of King's other books that reference pop culture and songs and things like that. Like they are even the the most crowded with with those references is like a distant second to this book. Yep. The earlier drafts of this book, or I should say the earlier releases of this book, have lead-ins to every chapter with song verses. It's not just like a title or not just a quote by a musician. It's whole chunks of songs. Wow. The the paperback edition has three pages in tiny print of all of the acknowledgments and permissions to all of the songs used throughout the book and referenced throughout the book. Three pages of that. And they are really important, I think, to understanding the characters, the motivations, and the plot. It's not just window dressing. I think it's integral to the story. So it makes me a little bit saddened that maybe copyright or whatever fees King or the publishing house had to pay for those rights at the time have expired or have become much too expensive to continue. Yep. So anybody who's experiencing this book for the first time now with a new new print, they're missing out on a good chunk of the spice that makes this book <laughs> extra special. Yeah. So it's worth just mentioning just a couple of the things. In just the first 11 chapters of the book, there 
are, I recorded what were in the Kindle edition, the songs that were mentioned by title and, and their performer and the band who, who, who performs the song. We've got Dirty White Boy by Foreigner, Jukebox Heroes, also by Foreigner, Maybelline by Chuck Berry, Wake Up Little Susie by the Everly Brothers, Susie's Darling by Robin Luke, One Note Man by the Youngbloods, Still the Same by Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band, and finally Susie Q by Dale Hawkins. That's just in this section of the book, and that's with all of that other stuff removed in the Kindle edition. And that's just names and songs. Like There are other references that are just in passing as well. Yeah. The big thing that I want to point out there, Jay, is that it gets back to the generational thing I mentioned earlier. Those are some obviously 70s songs, your Foreigners and your Bob Seegers, which makes sense because they're in high school around that time and that's what they're listening to. But then the other ones are like the 50s songs, which is when mm-hmm. Christine was around. That whole 60s is just not there, right? It's the, the birth of rock and roll in the 50s and then the current rock and roll in the 70s. That's not the only sort of generational type of reference that there is. They talk about the movie Grease. Yeah. Grease is also a movie that came out in the 70s, but was about the 50s. Mm-hmm. And Arnie's last name is Cunningham. And the first thing I think of with Cunningham is Happy Days, which was a show that was made in the 70s about the 50s. And so this it's, it's this like looking back a, a generation, back to when the car was built, back to when their parents were kids, maybe. Uh-huh. It's just an integral part of the story, how he's playing around with these generations between adults and kids and 70s and 50s and the current and the past. And it, it's just wonderful. It, it's probably something that everyone noticed, but the way he does it so seamlessly, it's just an important part of the book. And when I'm thinking about the the movie adaptation and how it came out almost concurrently, mm. King wrote this book and published it in 1983. and Dennis is ostensibly writing it in 1982. Right. The the Dennis of the book is basically saying and and doing all of these things just looking back just 4 years. Yeah. If you read this book in 1983, the week it was published, you would feel like you were in the right time and place to just just go back 20 years and you're right there with the previous generation. You're there with the 50s, you're there with the manufacture of Christine off the assembly line, right? So the timing is right. And therefore, the movie is, while it was made in 1983, so it was basically like, it wasn't a period piece. It was done in the right time for the book to take place. It makes me worry all the more that if the Blumhouse version of this ever comes out, that they're going to set it in the 2010s or the 2020s and it's going to be completely dumb. Like, what are they going to do? Like, have a... Hey, look, he's got a Buick, a 2005 Buick. <laughs> yeah, 2005 Buick. It's 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 painted red and white for some reason, and uh, it, it just won't make any sense. No, no, bad idea. Just to get back to the, the whole rock and roll story about this, you know, when you think of rock and roll, especially the early days of rock and roll, 50s and 60s, what were, what, what were they about, Jay? Cars and girls, right? Like, if you think about the Beach Boys, having fun, cars, and girls. Like, that's what a lot of rock and roll was about back then. And I think that that's what this book's going to be about. Just maybe a darker side of that. 
Jay, one of the things I wanted to point out, though, is that this makes all sorts of sense to Dennis being an 18-year-old when the events happened and 22 now. But he says, when I look back on that year, my senior year, it seems to me that I can measure it out in blocks of rock and an escalating dreamlike sense of terror. And he's referring to the fact like he remembers like, oh, yeah, there's two Foreigner songs in a row because it was a rock block weekend. And that is so real. Like, I mm-hmm. remember the year 1991 so clearly because it was my senior year, but also because Octung Baby by U2 came out and Nirvana hit it big later in 91. And I remember everyone talking about Nirvana. And like, I place all of my memories around that year or around music. And I'm I'm able to do that with years of music when I was a kid. Like I can remember when certain albums came out and when I heard them for the first time and who I was with and who my friends were with at the time and what we thought about. And all that's lost now, right? Like I remember those things from like the late 80s and early 90s and even into like the late 90s. But then once I got older than Dennis's age in this book, it's all sort of a blur. Like I couldn't tell you what song if it came out in 2001, 2005, 2009, 2015, because it's all just not the same. But when you think about certain music that is important to you, you can place it in a certain amount of time and remember the events. And that's what Dennis seems to be doing here with rock and roll. Yeah. Or even just kind of ticking by the the passage of time with like, oh, it's another, you know, Casey Kasem's countdown. Right. And that must mean it's, you know, like another week has gone by. Yep. Will I have an opportunity to stay listening to the radio long enough to hear him get to a number one? Or am I going to have to get out of the car and go do whatever I was going to go do? And um, yeah, for me, I almost never actually heard the number one song, <laughs> but also wasn't the end of the world. All right. Well, we said earlier that it might be a stretch to find some Dark Tower thinnies, but we're going to do our best here. Yeah, but uh, nevertheless, we've got a good number here. We have 19 of them? No, it's not that good of a number. I'll start us off. Uh, and there's one that we actually both noted this line. They ruined him, Denny. I could hear my grandfather, now five years dead, saying in his cackly old man's voice, they ruined him good. And of course, anytime I see the word ruined instead of ruined, I can't help but think of the Dark Tower and Wolves of the Kala. Clearly, this is a word or a pronunciation of a word that King has been around his whole life and yep. maybe attributes it to old men or something, but he made it part of the the parlance, I guess, of Colibrin Sturgis. So for me, that word runt will always be a Dark Tower reference. Agreed. And similarly, we're told that the owner of the car is LeBay's the name, Roland D. LeBay, U.S. Army retired. And anytime I'm going to see the word Roland for the rest of my life, I'm going to think of our gunslinger friend. I think it's a little bit of a stretch to think of Roland LeBay as a gunslinger at this point, but it seems weird that King wrote, published two books at the same time where there was a character named Roland and really sort of entirely different at this point, at least what we know about this Roland. Yeah, I suppose that um, if King had any notion of how big the Dark Tower stories would would get for him and how much they would consume his conscious and maybe unconscious thought patterns when writing subsequent books. I don't think he would have named LeBay Roland. No, probably not. But I'll allow it. 
So there's a, a moment that early in the story when Dennis just sort of takes stock of the the moment in his life and he's he reflects. It was August 11th, 1978, and I was going to be a senior in high school next month. And if you add the month and the day, August 11th together, it's 8 plus 11, and that equals 19. Oh, I can't do any fancy math like that. So mine is, they're talking about the the man whose house they park Christine in front of when it gets a flat tire. They call him the big cheese of 119 Basin Drive. And that's got the number 19 directly in it, Jay. Do you see that? Yeah. If you ignore the one before it, then you got 19. They're pointing out there's 119. Okay. Yeah. There's a line here that refers to a tarot card. Hmm. Christine was old. No, not just old. She was ancient. A terrible hulk of a car. Something you'd expect to see in a tarot deck. Instead of the hanged man... The death car. Something you could almost believe was as old as the pyramids. And I could easily picture Walter dealing this card to Roland on the Golgotha. Yep. And then Roland saying, what the hell's a car? And what are the pyramids? I figured uh, I'd call that out as a thinny. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, And I like that imagery there of the tarot deck. And we've seen enough images of the headlights of Christine that you could see that being played and being freaked out. I think this is my main connection to how Christine the novel can reach through the Todash space to actually touch the Dark Tower novels. And that is that one possible interpretation is that Christine is a car driven or meant to be driven by the low men. Mm. That is why Christine is, I'll just say, special. It's not a normal car. That is because, like all of the other very loud and ostentatious low-men vehicles, she's bold in color and in size and in scope, and also seems to have this touch of like a mystique and malevolence mm-hmm. that those cars have. Like They almost seem to be a threat in and of themselves, like when Bobby Garfield is is keeping an eye out for the low men and, and he sees some of these cars that the that the adults don't notice. He can and he sees how how vile those cars appear to be. And I think Christine could be one of those cars. And one of the songs referenced in the paperback edition was From a Buick Six. And King would later write a book called From a Buick Eight, which is a book about a car that was at least we theorize is left behind by a low man. So I kind of feel like maybe that's how Christine got to be the way she is. Like I said, it's a reach. I had to I had to open up the thinny and really let it stretch all the way out, but that's my connection to this book. And you had to mention one of my least favorite King books from a Buick 8. Yikes. Not my favorite. I, I will say I read it before I read any of the Dark Tower, so maybe it'll be better. I have just one more. And it's more of a reverse thinny than anything else. But when Arnie arrives in Darnell's shop, he starts pulling in and Darnell tells him where to park the car and to turn it off because it's choking everybody with the exhaust fumes. And Darnell directs him to stall 20 and yells it a bunch of times. And that's where Arnie parks Christine. And that's where Christine stays for the entire time she's in Darnell's garage. And man, 
why didn't King put her in stall 19? Yeah. Such a missed opportunity. So that's just me being disappointed that King didn't create an extra thinny for us. Yes. Well, so far, this has been a fairly tame novel, but are there any examples of yucking it up? Why don't you kick us off there, Sean? Yeah. So Dennis needs to bribe Arnie at some point. And he says, let's get a pizza, a big greasy one that smells like armpits. And unfortunately, I can both smell and picture that pizza. And it is not pleasant. <laughs> not pleasant at all. I'm not even sure what he's talking about. When, like, what pizza smells like armpits? I don't get that. I, I can imagine get, going into a mom and pop pizza sh- shop and having, like, a pizza filled with all sorts of crap and greasy and just have it not smell quite right. Just sort of funky. Less the dough smell and more the grease and the cheese smell. Hmm. I suppose oils could go rancid and if you don't keep the place sanitary. Yeah. What do you got? I, I don't know if this is really even that yucky, but on LeBay's property where Christine was parked, there was a diseased looking oil spill that had sunk into the ground and killed everything that had once grown there. That rectangular piece of ground was so fucking gross, I almost believe that if you looked at it for too long, you'd go blind. Mm. And like, this is... Dennis just talking about just like a dead patch of ground from motor oil and who knows what else, you know, leaked out of Christine's engine block. And, but it, apparently it's so abhorrent that just looking at it could make you blind. I, I threw it in there as my yucking it up. Yeah. It makes me think back to what you were saying about how Arnie was drawn to this car. And based on that passage you just read, Christine has obviously been sitting in LeBay's front yard for quite some time for it to just totally destroy this section of lawn. And yet, this is the first time that Arnie has seen it, or at least noticed it. Yeah. So it makes me wonder if they're going down a street they've never gone down before, and why are they going down that street? Is it because the car is calling to Arnie? Is it because, like, like you said earlier with Tack, or is it because somebody or some force is pushing him towards Christine or Christine's calling. It's very interesting. Those are moderately fascinating questions. (laughs) All right. Well, I want to thank our patrons for supporting the show and getting access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. And if you've not caught on yet, there's a pretty good chance that Christine's going to be an upcoming bonus episode, the, the movie. So you might want to join and become a patron so you can listen to that. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. And we want to thank specifically Megan R., who recently joined at the apprentice level, and Paul M. and Steve K., no, not that one, have been supporting us for over a year. So thank you all. That is fantastic. Okay, Jay, it's time for some fun stuff. All right. I've been having so much fun so far. I hardly need this special section, but let's do it. Why don't I kick us off, Jay? Yeah. Why don't you kick us off, Sean? The Kindle has an epigraph by Robert Greeley, who is a poet, and that takes the place of some of that music that I think was there. Mm -hmm. This is a poet that King has referenced elsewhere in both the Institute and Insomnia. So I just like that King has done this a few times where he's He's got a writer or, or a poet that he likes, and 
he makes reference to him. So here's another one in, in two other books as well. I can dig it. I did have a, a nice laugh uh, when we learned that Dennis once uh, teased his sister, who was obsessed with John Travolta, by referring to him as John Revolta. <laughs> it's almost as if Dennis reads Mad Magazine. Like that seems like a Mad <laughs> Magazine type of thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this book is interesting because it is set in the Pittsburgh area, which is a little bit of a outlier for a lot of King novels, right? There's not too mm-hmm. many set in in that. Now, one place that is is the short story The Raft mentions the University of Horlicks as as the place where the kids go to college. And Arnie's parents both are academics who teach at the University of Horlicks in the in the Pittsburgh area. And they're also living in a town called Libertyville. And Libertyville is not a real suburb of Pittsburgh, but other ones that are mentioned here are. They talk about uh, that Libertyville isn't ritzy like the neighboring suburb of Fox Chapel, where most of the homes are estates like the one you used to see every week on Colombo. But it isn't like Monroeville either, with its miles of malls, discount tire warehouses, and dirty book emporiums. And my wife, who is from Western Pennsylvania, I said, hey, does this sound about right? She's like, as soon as I said Fox Chapel, I didn't even read the part about Colombo. She said, oh yeah, that's a really... uh, that's a really fancy neighborhood. That's a rich neighborhood. I'm like, oh, is it like the ones you would see in Colombo? She's like, I guess. <laughs> and I have taken a couple of business trips to Monroeville. Yep. Malls, dirty discount tire warehouses and dirty book emporiums. That about matches it up right. So lots of low brick structures with no windows is what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I will say the hotel I stayed in had an outback attached to it though. So it had that going for it. Which is nice. Just a quick uh, shout out to our bonus episodes. Uh, we did a bonus episode on the Creep Show episode adaptation of The Raft. That's right. Another thing I wanted to call out here is that I just love the names of the gang of bullies in this book. There's, of course, Buddy Repperton, which is pretty good, but yeah. all on its own, not the most interesting name. He's got another person in his gang named Moochie Welch. <laughs> And there's also Don Vandenberg, Sandy Gauton, and Moochie apparently got his name because he's always standing outside music events, mooching for change. Like, I guess so, or tickets. How I don't do know. you <laughs> get a reputation like that? But to be one of the bullies in the high school, and but everybody calls you Moochie because you're always <laughs> like, "Hey, can I borrow like a quarter? I don't have enough to get into the concert." I fun names. So my last fun stuff, Jay, is this is Roland LeBay who says, I ate dust in Texas and seen crabs as big as lobsters in some of them Nogales hordens. And when I first read this, my eye immediately went to the lobsters. I'm like, oh, is he talking about lobstrosities? And is this a dark tower thinny? But then I read it a little closer. I realized, oh, he's talking about pubic crabs that were as big as lobsters. And I'm like, eee, is this yucking it up? I'm like, nah, I'll just put it in fun stuff. <laughs> the emotional roller coaster that you went through in that sentence. I guess I'll I'll close down fun stuff with with the guy who lived in the house where they where Arnie's car broke down. Yeah. They had a, a pretty tense encounter with. His name was Ralph. I just loved the way Ralph talked and the words he used. He was yelling at his kids and he says, get in the house. 
what you doing out here? You want me to put a bang shang a lang on you? And then Dennis just immediately th- just immediately thought, oh God, what an onomatopoeic family. For Christ's sake, don't put a bang shang a lang on them, Pops. They might make a poopy caca in their pants. <laughs> King paints such a splendid picture of this probably lower income blue collar family in Pittsburgh suburb. Yep. This guy was at work all day. He came home. He's getting uh, his his beer. He's got his greasy hamburger sandwich, and he's threatening to put a bang shang lang on his uh, kids because they're acting up and annoying him. Yep. Great stuff. Okay, it's time for some other worlds than these. I'll start us off. I've been watching the latest season of Star Trek Discovery on Paramount+. Plus. It's currently in season four. I am enjoying this season probably more, I should say definitely more than any of the others before it. I recommend the show if you're a Star Trek fan. If you're thinking about like, I'm not sure what Star Trek's all about. Let me watch something. What do you recommend? Don't watch this. It's, (laughs) It's not for you. Fall in love with Star Trek the way I did. Watch the original series. Watch The Next Generation. Maybe watch Voyager? But this show is okay. Just to give it a a tiny critique, previous seasons, the episodes kind of fluctuated between a bit of plot with action and then this emotional dramatic scene where one character is having an emotional issue and another character is just laying on some wisdom and being all there for them with this, you know, music that just tugs at your heartstrings. And everyone's just like, oh, I'm so glad that you could help me with this emotional problem. And the other person's like, oh, of course, because you're my family. We're all on this starship together and we're family. And that's what every episode was, just like paint by numbers, stamp, stamp, stamp for a whole season. This season, it feels a little bit like the original series. Mm. They have a story arc bigger than an episode, but that's background. The main thing is individual episodes where the crew does stuff like Kirk and Spock did. I'm enjoying it a lot more because I feel like it's it's figured out a way to sort of blend its earlier tendencies with what I think makes Star Trek good. If you are at all interested at this point of me talking about it, uh, check it out. It's on Paramount Plus. And uh, there are three earlier seasons before this that are, I'd say, decent Star Trek, but they're not as good as this fourth one. Okay. How about you? What have you been hanging out, thinking about, experiencing? Some of you may remember that in 2021, I made it a goal to read all 21. Travis McGee novels by John D. McDonald, and I successfully completed that. I I rushed through the last four in like a two-week period. Wow. In between books, I, I just sort of tore, tore through them, and they were fantastic, like I remember them being, and I, I got a lot out of them this time. I decided, hey, let's do something for 2022, some sort of theme reading, and that is going to be Kurt Vonnegut. So a couple of reasons. One, it's the centennial of his birth in 2022, so that's exciting. 
Two, there is a new documentary about his life called Unstuck in Time. I have not watched it yet. It's available on Amazon Prime, but it was made over the course of like 30 years of his life. Oh, wow. There was a guy who wrote Kurt Vonnegut and said, hey, I'd love to to talk to you and meet you. And they start up a correspondence and then he started filming him. Every so often they would get together and he'd just start filming Vonnegut and interviewing him and talking to him. And Vonnegut's been dead for like 16 years now, I think. And this guy's put together the movie and it's gotten some really good acclaim. And based on the trailer, it looks like something I'm really going to like. So that documentary is called Unstuck in Time, obviously a reference to Slaughterhouse-Five. And so I'm going to read his books in 2022. And I think I'm going to read them chronologically. By the time you hear this, who knows where I'd be, I'll be. But right now I'm listening, or I'm sorry, right now I'm reading a short story collection called Welcome to the Monkey House, a bunch of early short stories that capture lots of big ideas by Vonnegut, as well as some of his wry humor, I would say. And then I'll move into the first novel, player piano, and go on from there. But uh, if you have any interest, feel free to reach out to me, and I'd love to talk Vonnegut with you. That sounds awesome. I wonder if Rodney Dangerfield will show up in the Kurt Vonnegut miniseries. We can only hope. He, he was in Back to School in a small cameo. That is true. That's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover Christine, chapters 12 through 19. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. I'm looking at your crabs as big as lobsters thing. It reminds me of this uh, Dom Irera joke. What's worse than lobsters on your piano? Crabs on your organ. Well, there's six minutes of Vampire Chronicles. It's a trailer for our new podcast on the Vampire Chronicles. <laughs> hey, if we can make hay out of Stephen King in the Dark Tower, we could do the same with the vampire books but i think we shan't no i'd be happier doing the vonnegut stuff i could see you talking me into that i've read like one vonnegut book yeah you should read vonnegut that's why i had to hire him to write my book report because <laughs> you'd only read the one <laughs> yep all right, you ready to clap? Yep.